God, we do give you thanks for moms. And um, your word says that you call yourself father. You have revealed yourself to us in the masculine terms. Um, but Lord, we know that you transcend that and you're, you're not male. Jesus was a man. But God, you have created people in your image, male and female, to reflect your nature. And we thank you for the unique way that mothers do that. The way that they nurture us. The way that they show compassion to us. The way that they do lay down their lives and sacrifice for us. And, and we just, we honor them and by honoring them, we honor you this morning. That you made mothers to play that unique and incredible role. And Lord, we do also pray for those who are hurting this morning as they think about what it means to be a mother, either as they think about their own mom or the, the desire they've had to be a mom. And we pray that you would comfort them and hear their prayers and be close to them. Lord, we thank you so much, too, for your word and the way that it leads us to know you and understand you. And I pray that as we look at your word this morning, we would desire to seek you. And I pray that as we seek you, we would find you, that you would draw close to us, that you would minister to our hearts, and that you would shape us into the image of Christ. For your glory we pray. Amen. So I want you to open your Bible with me to 1 John chapter 5. That's probably no surprise. We're coming to the end of John's letter here. And like people often do as they move towards concluding a piece of writing, John is going to summarize and remind us of some of the things that he's taught us through his letter. In our verses today, John's going to remind us in particular of the benefits that we have as Christians because of the relationship that we have with God. Specifically, he's going to talk about eternal life that we have. And he's also going to mention the fact that we receive the answers to our prayers that we ask because of this relationship that we have with God. So let me read 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So in verse 13, John gives us here a purpose statement for his letter as he reaches a conclusion here. He tells us that he's written these things to those who believe in Jesus in order that we who read this might know that through our faith in Christ, we have eternal life. And we've already touched on this concept quite a bit as we've made our way through the, the book of 1 John, because this isn't the first time that he's talked about confidence and faith in Christ and what we know to be true because of our faith. But I think that it serves us again here at the end to kind of just be reminded of what John is, is speaking about. So I've actually put on each chair, I had a, a volunteer put on each chair, a little piece of paper, and I'd love for you to pull that out and take a look at it. If you're joining us on the live stream, then if you look in the description of this video, you'll find a little link to our website where you can download um, like a word format of this document to look at. 
It's just this little page right here. And what you're looking at here is a summary of all of the proof that John has mentioned through his letter. And I've only recorded each one time. So there are instances where he repeats himself, but for the sake of getting it on one half sheet of paper, I didn't copy down all of the repeats. But these are the things that John has said throughout his letter that will give us confidence that we do, in fact, have eternal life. And this is really important because we actually have eternal life right now through our faith in Jesus. But sometimes, since we're not yet living in the presence of God, I think we can fall into maybe doubt or a sense of uncertainty because the thing that we are looking forward to that does belong to us but we haven't yet received, it's, it's not fully here quite yet. How do we know that we have eternal life when we have yet to step into the fullness of that resurrected life in the new heavens and the new earth. One way to kind of maybe think about this difficulty or one way to maybe approach it to kind of illustrate what what we're getting at here is actually thinking about ordering something on Amazon, as cliche as that is. When you click that button on Amazon and then the money comes out of your bank account, technically you own whatever that thing is that you just purchased, it's yours. But you don't have the item yet, so how do you know that you own it? It's not yet in your possession entirely. Well, you've got the receipt, and you've got the transaction that you can show on your bank account. You've got the record of the payment. You've got a delivery date that's scheduled. And all of these things are little pieces of proof that help you understand while you wait for the full delivery of that thing, you are actually already in possession of it. And in a way, that's what John has tried to kind of do in this letter that he's been giving us. He's given us a whole bunch of proofs throughout this letter that we can look at to evaluate so that we might know even now that we have eternal life. Jesus has already paid for our redemption. The Holy Spirit has already been deposited into our hearts. And these things now in with these things now in place, we already are changed. We're already made children of God. We're already brought into the kingdom of God. We already have access to eternal life. So I want to take a look at this piece of paper that I've given you guys, where I've listed all of these proofs. And I just want to read through them. I'm not going to read every reference. You can go home and do that. But I'm just going to read my summary of them for you. So John says, we walk in the light. We confess our sins to God and we receive his forgiveness. We keep his commandments. We walk in the same way in which he walked. We love our brothers and sisters in the faith. We don't love the world and we don't love the things of the world. We know the truth. We abide in Christ. We practice righteousness. We purify ourselves because we are children of God. We put off sin because we are children of God. We love one another. We're hated by the world because we've chosen not to be friends with the world. We lay down our lives for God and one another. We love in word, talk, deed, and truth. 
We're not condemned by our hearts. We do what pleases God. We believe in God's Son, Jesus Christ. We have the Spirit of God within us. We listen to what God has said in his word. We've received the love of God. We've received Jesus as the propitiation or the payment for the penalty of our sins. We love God. We confess that Jesus is the Son of God. We believe that God loves us. We do not fear wrath or punishment from God. We believe that Jesus is our Savior, the Christ, the Messiah. And we receive the testimony of God. Wow, what an awesome list that is. I encourage you to stuff that in your Bible and to keep it there as a reminder of our study through 1 John. Now look, what I'm saying here is not that you must perfectly exemplify every one of these things all of the time in order to be sure that you belong to the kingdom of God. I'm not suggesting, please don't misunderstand, I'm not suggesting that unless you are doing this list all day, every day, consistently over all of your life, that that's the only way that you can know that you have eternal life, okay? Rather, what I'm suggesting is that John wants us to be able to read his letter and see ourselves generally and consistently and more and more over time achieving these things as true of who we are. Practicing these things. That's a word he's used throughout his letter quite often. And when we practice these things regularly, generally, consistently, we can be confident. We have proof that we are indeed children of God, that we belong to God. A non-Christian does not exemplify these things. Certainly not consistently over time. And a Christian generally will exemplify these things. And we've talked about this. Why? It's because, not because you're awesome, but because God is present in you. This is the proof of him living and dwelling in you. It's true because these things are a work of God. And it's God who is bearing the fruit of these things out in our lives. And if these things show forth in your life, and if you could say you're growing in them, and if in your heart you desire them, and if you're pursuing them, then John would tell you, you can indeed know that you have eternal life. You are a child of God, even though you have not yet fully and bodily stepped into the everlasting new heavens and new earth. If these fruits are present in your life, then by grace, you're a child of God. What a beautiful truth that is. Now look at verse 14. John writes, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. I want to first look at this. Uh, I want to first look to understand why we have confidence. Then once we've understood why we have confidence, I think we can understand what confidence does for us. So as we look at those, this verse, these are the two things I want to hit on. Our confidence comes from the fact that by grace, through faith in Christ, we are God's children. And our God is a good father. Our God's a good father. He delights to give good gifts to his children. He desires to see us succeed in our pursuit of godliness. 
He's committed to that more than you are. He longs to welcome us home to his kingdom. He's eager to walk with us and to shower us with his love in his presence. We don't need to be timid when we come to God. We can be bold because God has redeemed us by the blood of Jesus Christ and adopted us into his family. If you have little kids, I mean, you just know, you know how shockingly bold little children are. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're in the toilet or on the toilet or in the shower or busy cooking or your hands full of all kinds of things. They know that because they are your child, they have the right to come to you and to interrupt you and to presume upon you. And so we're not confident because of our own performance or our own abilities. We're confident because of this father-child relationship that God has granted to us. A relationship that actually entitles us to all of the riches of Jesus Christ. Entitles us. Did you hear what I just said there? I actually said that you are entitled to all of the riches of Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.12 tells us that we should give thanks to God the Father because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints of light. God has done that. And we are now inheritors I said that we're entitled to all of the riches of Christ, and I meant that. Now, the word entitled, I think, is a little bit of a dirty word in our culture today to some degree. But the word entitled, when it comes to our relationship with God, it simply means that God has granted to us a title. He has gifted to us a wonderful gift. We don't come to him boldly on our own merits. We don't come to him saying, God, I'm a wonderful person and therefore I'm entitled to these things. No, we come to God boldly because God has bestowed upon us the title of beloved child. And that's because of the wonderful work that Jesus has done to redeem us out of sin and make us right with God. God has granted you the right to actually impose upon him. He's authorized you to approach him. He's given you permission to come before him like a child, approaching your daddy. And God loves to give good things to those who ask him. He delights to do that. And so we should be bold to ask God because he's adopted us into his family by grace. And now you are, in fact, entitled to come before God with your requests because Jesus has made you his own. But... John does also teach us an important point regarding what we go about asking for. Our confidence to come before God and ask should be directed rightly towards what God desires for his children. In the second part of verse 14, if you'll look there, John says that if we ask anything according to his will, God hears us. God's desire for his children is that they would desire God's will for their lives. So I think it'll be helpful here for us to clarify what is God's will, right? This is a a really important question. How do we know what God's will is so that we can obey this verse and ask according to his will? If you don't know what God's will is, then you you can't obey this verse. Well, historically, the church has taught that God has two wills. 
First, we can speak about God's providential will or his secret will. If you're the note-taking type, this is where you should be writing. God's providential will, or you could call it his secret will. What does God will to happen in the future? What does God will to happen in your life tomorrow? Wrapped up in this are questions like, where should I work? Where should I live? Where should I go to school? Who should I marry? Those are the kinds of questions wrapped up in God's providential will. And the truth is, we don't know because God has not revealed it to us. He's not made it something that we can know ahead of time. It is his to know. It's kept from us. And that's why we would call it secret. This is why Paul, when he's writing to the Roman church in the book of Rome, uh, Romans, can say that he's been asking God that somehow, by God's will, Paul will be allowed to go and visit them. Paul doesn't know God's will for his travel plans. That's not information that God has uh, seen fit to tell him ahead of time. But Paul does still feel humbly confident to come before God and say, Lord, this is what I want. I don't know yet what you want for my travel plans, but this is what I want. Now, because we don't know God's will for the events of our future, we don't know how God's going to respond to prayers that concern events in our future. We simply do not know. But what we do know is that God loves us. God is always going to do what he knows to be his best. He's good and he's sovereign and he's kind and we can trust him in that. That even if his secret will is to take us through trial and fire and floods and danger and turmoil, he still loves us and he's still good and he's still going to bring all of that to bear in our lives in a way that is positive and glorifying to him in the end. And we can trust him in that. So the first will of God is his secret providential will, and nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. Now, the second will of God is God's moral will, or we could say his revealed will. God has given us his word so that we can know what his will is for our lives. Here it is. You want to know God's will? It's right here. I would ask you, how well do you know this book, if this is God's will for your life? God has told us that it is his will that we would be holy and godly, that we would give thanks to him in all circumstances, whether good or bad. God has told us that it is his will that we would be sanctified, that we would honor him, that we would love one another. God's made it very clear it's his will that we would abstain from sin that we would lay down our lives, that we would love God with all of our hearts and seek his kingdom first. Look at that list that you have in your hand. You want to know God's will for your life? You are holding there in that list a brief summary. We know God wills these things for us because God has clearly told us that that is his will. Now this is important. And the reason is because I've found as a pastor that sometimes Christians spend far too much time trying to figure out 
what God's will for the future is regarding their life. And in doing that, they actually neglect to seek hard after the will that God has clearly revealed for our lives. This was my experience actually in high school. I didn't know where to go to college. And so I spent all kinds of time, you know, praying that God would show me where I should go to college. In the end, I don't feel like he gave me an answer. And while I was all anxious about that, I was not trusting him in my daily life. I don't know what God's will is for the future of your life. I can't tell you that. But I do know that God's will for you and for your life right now in this moment is that you would be holy like God himself is holy. And God's going to give you all the resources that you need to make progress in that. And John's telling us in these verses that if we ask God for anything that aligns with what God has already told us he desires for us, then God delights to answer those prayers in the affirmative and give to us exactly what we are asking for. Think about how powerful prayer is in that regard. What amazing confidence we have in God's grace towards us. That we can go to him and ask him for what he has told us he desires for us in his word. And God is not only going to hear those prayers, but he's going to delight to grant them. Look at verse 15. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask... We know that we have the request that we've asked of him. I want to read that again. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. Now, at first, this may look like a little bit of a tricky verse. Many people, I think, have misused this verse to encourage all kinds of permissiveness in prayer. Maybe you've heard a sermon like that or somebody speak like that. On the surface, it may appear as if John is saying that we can ask God for whatever we want and we can be certain that he will give us whatever we ask him for. Okay, maybe you've heard the whole like, let me pray for a red Ferrari and this verse is telling me God's going to give it to me. It's the whole name it and claim it approach to prayer that I think is rampant in our culture today, actually. Like God is some kind of cosmic genie in a bottle who's just overjoyed when we come to him and we rub that lamp in prayer and then he's going to grant us all of our silly desires. But I'm going to give you a very basic tool of biblical interpretation. It's found in the simple statement that verse 14 governs the meaning of verse 15. Maybe you've heard it said like this, context matters. This is just basic Bible study methodology. You can't rip verses out of their context and then think that you've understood what they mean. Now, I'm not suggesting you can't be encouraged by a verse. I'm just saying that if you really want to understand all that it means, you need to look at the ideas and meaning that surround that verse. Verse 15 only makes sense if you first also understand verse 14. If you read these two verses together, then you understand that John is absolutely confident that if we ask God anything 
according to his will, God will grant us that request. And this is why it's important to be very clear about what God's will is. So that we don't get disappointed or think that God hasn't answered or been faithful to his word if he doesn't do what we ask him to do. So let me give you an example. I mean, a lot of times when people are praying, they ask for prayer for, you know, their sick family member. And that's a beautiful thing, and we should do that. So if, for example, I ask God to heal my sick mom, I am free to ask for that. And Philippians 4 tells us that we can let our requests be made known to God. And so we're invited to bring those prayer requests, whatever they are, before God. And God, because he loves us and because we're our children, he receives those requests from us. But God has not said anywhere in the Bible that it is his will to heal my mom. Now, the Bible does say that God heals the sick. That's true. And so we should be courageous to pray in light of that truth. But God has not told us the names of the people that he intends to heal. And he's not told us the time frame in which he might do that. And so we're really engaging with God when we pray for somebody like my sick mom in the realm of God's secret will. If I request that God heals my mom when she's sick, I'm asking him for something that's kept in his secret will. And I don't know how God's going to answer that prayer. He's not revealed that to me. I can't find that verse in the Bible. I'm free to ask God because he's my heavenly father, but it's up to him to do what he knows is best. And I trust that because God has revealed himself and his character to be good and loving and kind and merciful, that God's going to answer my prayer in the way that is best, but best in his terms, not according to my terms. And I then am just required to trust him in whatever answer he provides, because he's God and I'm not. And frankly, if I got my way all the time, you all would hate me. I mean, the world would be a mess. Okay, here, let me summarize it this way. God does not oblige himself to answer our prayers in the way that we want, except when our prayers are in accordance with his will. Now, if I ask God to make me more like Jesus, I can be absolutely certain that God delights to answer that prayer. 100%. The Bible teaches in Romans 8.29, for example, that God's will is that his people would be conformed into the image of Christ. And so if I pray, God, make me more like Jesus, I'm praying God's will for my life. And I should spend a lot of time praying prayers like that in my life. And I can be absolutely certain that if I ask God to make me more like Jesus, God's going to answer a prayer like that. Because that's his will. He's already told me in his will that he wants to make his children more like him. So look again at that list in your hands. These things are God's will for you. I mean, I could have said so much more, but if I was really going to summarize all of it, I would have had to just print you all copies of my Bible. But that's a pretty decent starting summary. You can pray for these things with boldness. I mean, you can pray for anything with boldness. Don't misunderstand. 
God is eager to have you come to him in prayer because he loves you. He cares about you. He has concern for you. He is your father and you are his precious child. But when you pray for these kinds of things, sincerely, passionately, consistently, you can know with confidence that God's going to actually give you these things. You can pray and ask for God to grow you in these areas and you can be certain God's going to give you whatever you ask concerning these things. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 tells us that it's God's will that we would be sanctified, that we would be made holy. So this is the confidence that we have when we come before God. We can ask him anything because we're children, his children, and he loves us. But we can also know for certain that when, that when we ask him the things that he's told us he desires to give us, he is going to give us those things generously. We may not know the timing because that part he has not revealed to us, but we do know that he will give. And you know what else I found? I found that a lot of times I come to God with all kinds of desires and wants and needs, but the more that I begin to pray his will for my life according to what's been revealed in God's word, the more that's what I long for. The more all that other stuff that creeps in begins to just fade away. And I find myself hungering to just ask that God would give me more of himself. Another way to say that would be the more God gives himself to me, the more that my desires and my requests that I bring to him are going to be for God to give more of himself to me. And I just want to testify personally to you that I, I have experienced what John is speaking of here. I mean, over the course of two decades, I've been praying that God would make me more like Jesus. And I've still got a long way to go, so don't misunderstand. But God has been slowly and faithfully answering that prayer. God's been growing and conforming me more into the image of Christ. He's grown my love for Jesus. He's grown my desire for obedience. He's grown my faith in the midst of difficulty. He's given me more wisdom according to his word. And he's pruned me of sin and he's pressed me into greater humility that I might be more like Christ. And as I've asked God to make me more like Jesus, God has in fact given me what I've asked for. Now I wish he'd give it a little quicker, but he's given it generously, faithfully. And the truth is, nobody wants you to be more like Jesus than God does. And so if you think you're longing and hungering to be like Christ and you go to God, trust me, God is long, longing and hungering for you to be more like Christ far more than you are. And he said in Ephesians 4 that his intention for all Christians is that they would reach the stature of the fullness of Christ. And so he's greatly pleased to give us that request. So look, in conclusion, we're right back to where we started. What is God's will for us? We could go all over the Bible to get an answer to that question. I think one great passage in particular is kind of the second part of Romans 12. But we've already got a pretty amazing summary right here in 1 John. And I've pared it down for you to an even smaller summary that you could just stuff in your Bible and keep it there to encourage your prayer life, that God might answer these prayers for you. 
God's will for you and for me and for our church is really quite simple. His will for you is that you would love him and obey him. His will for each of us is that we would be like him in gentleness, in grace, in mercy, and in humility. His will is that we would know the truth and that we would love the truth, that we would stand firm in the truth. God's will is that we would not harden our hearts towards him, that we would hate the darkness and we would choose to walk in the light. His will is that we would love our enemies, that we would be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. God's will is that we would trust what he's taught us in his word, that we would hope in his coming, that we would seek his kingdom and rejoice even in the midst of trials. God's will is that we would be witnesses and testify to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, that we would be filled with his spirit, that we would grow in the knowledge of God's love for us. And the truly astounding thing is that if we ask for these things, John tells us, God will give us these things. He not only hears our requests, but he's delighted to grant those requests to his beloved children. These are the things that God desires in his heart for his people. So be encouraged, my friends. If you have toiled long in prayer, asking for God, maybe to give you victory over a particular sin that you know that God does not like, or maybe just to be more like him, maybe to grow in a particular fruit of the Spirit, don't grow discouraged. I want to encourage you to continue to pray in boldness and to know without a shadow of a doubt that the answer that you are longing for, it is coming. Because God's heart is that you would be like Christ. That's his will. And God is faithful. And he delights to give us everything that he desires and wills for our lives. Let me pray. God, what an astounding truth this is. We are in awe of you. That you desire that we would be like you. You will for us that we would be holy like you are holy. And you don't leave us to our own devices to make progress in holiness. But instead, like John teaches you are pleased to answer our prayers and you are pleased to give us these things according to your will. And Lord, I pray that we would trust your will. I pray that when we come to you with prayers that are really appealing to your secret will where we don't know what the outcome will be, I pray that we would just trust that however you choose to respond to that is best. And Lord, I pray that when we come to you with prayers that we know are according to your will, that we would be bold and we would be hopeful and we would know that because you love us, you are eager to give us these things, that we would be more like Christ. And so, Lord, that's my prayer, that according to your will, our church would reflect more and more the beautiful image of Jesus Christ. Amen.